Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So as the market calms, it's time for us to take a step back and think about some really important issues. And we do that, I'm very pleased to say, with truly one of the world's leading economists. He took over at the uh, Bank of England as one of the Monetary Policy Committee members at the depths of the financial crisis fallout. He is an advocate of monetary policy activism when a lot of people were still thinking about the response that needed to take place. His name is Adam Poston. He's the, now the Peterson Institute for International Economics president. Adam, it's always great to catch up with you. Thank you for that. I'm just delighted to be back on surveillance. And a really important article in the latest issue of Foreign Affairs. I want to read some of it to our to our listeners. The title is The Post-American World Economy. Is bedside reading? It was Friday last morning? night. It oh, was last really? night for a Thursday <laughs> night. But the final lines of this are so powerful. A world in which the United States ceases to lead, or worse still attacks, the system it built will be poorer, nastier, less fair, and more dangerous for everyone. So let's start there, Adam. Why? Uh, straightforwardly, I think the issue is twofold. When the U.S. set up this system, and that means all the free trade, all the rules, the institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, the norms of behavior, I make the analogy, it's like a club where the U.S. was the chair. Um, when it set up this system, it was actually as much about peace as prosperity. So you go back to Cordell Hall and Franklin Roosevelt and all that came out of World War II. And there was a big divide made between national security stuff and economic issues. And it's never been perfect, obviously. Um, but it meant that people and countries around the world could try to become prosperous without having to fear being threatened and bullied. Um, and what the Trump administration's stated national security strategy, as well as their bilateral approach, stated bilateral approach to trade deals and their hostility to some of the international organizations, again, which the U.S. set up. Yeah is doing is it's raising, it's breaking down that barrier, it's linking national security and economics in ways that I think are counterproductive. And it's making it so that there's more room for autocrats, not just the US, to be bullying to other countries and to individual businesses. So that's the big picture. The second thing that's going on is directly economically, it's eroding some things that make the world economy better. There is this tendency from President Trump particularly during the campaign, but since, from some of his cabinet officials, to suggest that the U.S. got some kind of raw deal in all these trade deals in every organization, whether it's the U.N. or the IMF, that somehow the American voters been suckered and made a fool of. Yeah. And it's exactly the opposite. It's been that the rest of the world had to catch up with the U.S. after World War II. The U.S. was dominant by historical accident and military victory. And what has happened is the U.S. has made it worthwhile for everybody to keep the U.S. in the chair position. And in fact, the U.S. basically gets to cheat and free ride to the degree these things are a little annoying to individual people. The U.S. gets the better deal than anybody else. So, Adam, the argument against this and the endorsement of the latest approach by this administration is there has been a leech on this system over the last two decades that refuses to play by the rules, right. and that's the Chinese economy. Is there an argument there to be made, Adam? It's, you're absolutely right. That is the question, is how much does the existence, if you're going to make a legitimate case to change the system, it's how much does the existence of China change it? And you're absolutely right. And where I share the administration's concerns, and I think everybody rightly does, it's a, particularly about forced technology transfer, forced intellectual property 
transfer, forced intellectual property, theft. These are <clears throat> issues where China is not playing by the rules and not just sort of minorly, importantly. But as we just heard rumors in the press the other day, it looks like, and I've been talking with officials in various countries about this, there may be a joint U.S.-EU-Japan case at the WTO really threatening yeah. China in a legal way, yeah. in an effective legal way to stop doing some of this. Adam, you, you mentioned uh, a solo of MIT. 1957 was the few papers then that changed the world. His technology is different than our technology. What John Farrow and I see in interviews mm -hmm. is everyone searching for a new definition of the technological effect or impact upon society. What is the new technology right now? How does it affect our listeners? There's we don't can, know. We don't know. And I'm I'm pausing because I can't just make up something. No, we don't no, know. No, we don't know. We don't but know. but I would say there are two commonalities, Tom, with the past. The first is there are always business secrets and leading-edge businesses which do get their intellectual property stolen. I mean, the Industrial Revolution in the U.S. was abetted by the fact that the Americans got around what were called the Navigation Acts in the late 18th, early 19th century in Britain and stole some of the technology that was used for power looming and producing cloth. Coventry, England was never the same because of that. That's right. And I'm not saying that means it's lovely and just. It just means we're not in an entirely new world. The other piece that goes on is there is a policy aspect to this, which I know you all have talked about before with other experts, which is where you draw the line on patent rights and protections for the developer versus where you let in competition. Yep. And that, I know I've listened to you guys talk about this. I mean, this is a real issue right now because on the one end, you have these enormously innovative large firms, yeah. but we're not seeing new business creation. That's in part because their patent rights are being very protected, even if they're not protected by China. Something else you've touched on, Adam, and I want to get to it with you because I think it's important. Myself, I would admit to this. Many market participants do the same. The IMF come out with a report. They come out with forecasts and we laugh at them. And I'm one of those that laughs at them because I sit here and think, why do I care what the IMF thinks about the world? The forecasts are always wrong. You've touched on this in your latest article and you call it the post-reality economy. And actually, for many of us, what we're doing is not a dangerous thing. We're just sitting here thinking, this isn't useful to my world. It's not useful for what I do as an investor, as a market participant. But you actually point out that it's really, really important that we do still continue to enshrine the work of the International Monetary Fund and others. Can you walk me through why? Yeah, I think a major part of the regime, the world system that the U.S. did set up was particularly the IMF, but also the OECD, the World Bank, other organizations that provide a consistent standard of data, both in terms of definitions and regularly public, publishing it and explaining it and making it accessible around the world. I mean, some, we shouldn't even take for granted domestic stuff like the Bureau of Labor Statistics here, which we know gets threatened. Yeah. But it, the critical point is this is like the free press for economics. It, it is an independent, objective voice, and frankly, it is objective. It sometimes gets things wrong, but they have no ax to grind trying to go out there and tell you what are the potential effects of changes in economic policies, how well is a government doing, and if you take that away, and if governments not only get to push back, but get, like the Trump administration or the May administration in the UK, gets to bully, again that word, to bully the authorities yeah. on this, markets have less, voters have less ability to hold, hold policymakers accountable, it's going to make more uncertainty markets, and it gives 
carte blanche to autocrats. This question, John, your question, John, is brilliant. And, and the, the point about it that comes up within all the research is to understand going in that you know whatever the analysis is you're looking at is going to be wrong. You have to start with a first-order condition that they never get it right. There's some yeah. really good research on this, folks, out of Vanderbilt University and also the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. With that said, what's your prediction? We know you're going to be wrong, Adam Bozen, but, <laughs> but wh what is your prediction for American economic growth given your post-American world economy? Well, unfortunately, Tom, it's not a quick morality play, as several of us pointed out during the crisis. You can do something that's temporarily good and not and horrible, but horrible long-term and not suffer for it yet. And I think that's where we are. I think the U.S. is going in for a couple of years of very, very strong growth. It may even average over the 3% that President Trump has spoken about. It's not sustainable. But the enormous fiscal stimulus we have is going to have a huge part of it and the huge global recovery. Frankly, yeah. frankly, the U.S. is benefiting from the rest of the world's growth. What happens over time, if these kinds of things I talk about in my article actually come to pass, which are happening, is you get less opportunities for the U.S. and less stable growth. The book of the moment that everybody's got on their reading list is Ben Steele, The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. Everybody's talking about uh, this work by Ben. There was the Marshall Plan. We all studied it. We all knew it. You lived reunification yeah. uh, in Germany, and now we live a Germany that has an alt-right minority party. We've got a government that can't come together, and we have an aging Angela Merkel. What are your thoughts on how Germany looks in 2020? I think there are three big messages to take away from Germany, Tom, besides, as Ben Steele rightly points out, Germany having been the result in some ways of the Marshall Plan. First is that you can have the alt-right and all these terrible things happening in politics even when you've had enormous economic success. So, right? So, you know, people keep saying in the U.S. the vote for this, that, or the other right-wing thing is due to economic angst. Well, they've had a 15-year run of great economics in Germany and you still got that anger. The second thing that's interesting is they've had all these years now of really huge exports, manufacturing exports, everything the Trump administration wants, and we still didn't get wage growth until literally just last week, right? We have a deal set with Ige Metal, the big union, to yeah. finally get some wage growth. And so that, to me, is a warning because we've seen the same thing in Japan, that even if you run big surpluses in trade, even if you grow fast, even if you have a shrinking labor force because of the demographics you mentioned, Tom, you don't see the wage increases, and the Fed's got to worry about that. And then the third big thing to think about Germany, which is more about going forward, is it's not just the Alternativen for Deutschland, the, the right-wing hateful party. It's that the moderate left party, the Social Democrats, are at historic lows of support. And this has been a long-term trend. And this is kind of the scary thing. Across Western Europe and arguably in the U.S., for all the talk 15, 20 years ago about third way from Clinton and Blair to Brown and Obama, you've now, the moderate left has been dying in every, every country. So like even in the U.K., right, Corbyn's labor is not Blair's labor. It's certainly not. So, you know, and this is, again, very odd in Germany that that's where they're ending up when they've had very good benefits from this system. They have had fantastic benefits. Um, most people would say it's off the back of some really tough reforms that went before Chancellor Merkel. And I ask a difficult question right now because I wonder how we view Merkel's term through the economic lens in about 10 years' time. And I wonder how much of a squandered opportunity this will turn out to be with rates near all-time lows with the budget as firm as it has been, and yet the investment at home just hasn't 
been there. Adam, we look at this economic period in Germany at the moment with these rose-tinted glasses that it's all great. But I wonder in five to ten years' time when we look back and actually think that Chancellor Merkel squandered a significant opportunity to address some issues that could have been addressed. No, I think you've put your finger on something extremely important, Jonathan. I think that's right. To be fair to Chancellor Merkel, though, I mean, this run of growth has been historically good. Yeah. And she didn't mess it up in any way, even if she partly was benefiting from her predecessor, Schroeder's labor market reforms. She didn't mess it up in any way, which a lot of people do. Nonetheless, the missed opportunity you speak about on investment, public and private, and how much public could have crowded in private investment, which of course is the infrastructure key, going back to the Marshall Plan. You have good public investment, sometimes forces in, attracts private investment. That is a huge loss. And additionally, that had huge spillovers on the rest of Europe. Because Germany kept underinvesting is part of the reason we had the Euro crisis. And part of the reason the recovery from the Euro crisis was too slow was because Germany was unwilling to expand domestic investment. Forget consumption, domestic yeah. investment. Now again, that's not all at Chancellor Merkel's feet, but the bottom line is if she gets credit for the good things she did and the errors she avoided, you're absolutely right, both for Germany's own long term and for European stability, the missed opportunity to invest the last 20 years is a big deal. Adam, just finally, for an investor from outside of Europe looking within, I think they have one basic question right now, and I'd like to ask it. The future of austerity in Europe with this shift in Germany, what is it? It's unclear because we still don't know, as Tom indicated, we still don't know what the coalition's going to be in Germany. And even if you get the coalition, even if the Social Democrats do go in the GroKo, the Grosse Coalition with the, with, the Social, with the Christian Democrats, and get the finance ministry, it's not like they're going to go on a huge spending spree. What has happened is people in Europe are reasonably backing off of some of the austerity because things are better. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Great. Great pleasure to be Love here. Love to see you in Washington when we get down there. Adam Posen is with the Peterson Institute. It is a joy, Jennifer, to always go to Jane Foley at Rabobank on the dollar and on what she will write about this weekend. Jane, it has been just a wild week. Is it a brutal move in the dollar or is it something less than that? You know, I think there are a number of different offsetting factors uh, hitting the dollar right now. And certainly the, the theme of uh, dollar weakness this week is uh, really taking its toll. Now, this, I think, refers back to concerns about uh, the fiscal deficit in the U.S., uh, some of the, the spending plans that we've seen over the last couple of months. But, of course, we've got to see this through the perspective of what's going on in, in Europe. The fundamentals in, in Europe really are very good, and we've seen more favorable growth growth data and also budget deficit data from a number of European countries uh, recently. And, and this is the backdrop, I think, which intensifies uh, the concerns about uh, the, the uh, fiscal discipline in the U.S. right now. Jane, big question. I know you've talked about the euro side of the trade, but this is dollar weakness against everything in G10, with the exception of maybe today. It's a bit of a novelty. Uh, Jane, talk to me about the dynamics that's behind a substantially weaker dollar. What is driving that right now? Well, if we, get, if we go back to the end of last year, we had the, the realization that we were finally going to get that, that tax plan through. The market began to worry then about the, the fiscal discipline in the U.S. Now, we know last year we had the Congressional Budget Office already warning that over the next 10 years we were going to get a larger U.S. budget deficit because really of the demographics alone. And then we got the, the changes in the law and we got the uh, many economists or surveys of economists suggesting that growth in the U.S. probably wouldn't reach 3%. So the market began to worry about unfair funded uh, spending
vaccine plans. And I think over the last week or so, this, this, is, this has worsened uh, with the, the two-year uh, budget program. It's con- also concerns about the, uh, the, the infrastructure program. And this has taken its toll on the dollar. Now, interestingly, I don't think this is the only dynamic in the market for the dollar right now. If we go back to last week, when we had the stock market selling off, we had the dollar strengthening. And this, I think, was in relation to fears about dollar <clears throat> liquidity. There's a lot of dollar-denominated debt, particularly in Asia. And again, if we did get another bout of market concern, we could get the dollar <coughs> pushing higher again. So, so within that, I, I guess the, the cocktail question over the weekend, Jane, is does, does, does the new fiscal angst or the expectation of fiscal angst, has that folded into your world yet or is that something to come? I think that's exactly what's been folded in right now. And I think that the dollar... You think it's had an impact. You think that the... I think the, it has the, the new, had an yeah, impact. Interesting. But as, as I say, I, I think one of the reasons that it's had such an impact on the dollar right now is because the market's looking through the prism of the improved fundamentals of the euro. So there's a, there's a direct, fairly, fairly obvious contrast here between the euro with its improving fundamentals and then concerns about fiscal discipline on, on the other side of the Atlantic. But Jane, how we work through something? Typically, we associate a looser fiscal with tighter monetary and a stronger currency. That theory doesn't apply in the United States of America right now. And I'm hearing this bearish view on the dollar off the back of a deficit that is getting wider, a fiscal deficit that gets wider in the United States. Can you walk me through the mechanics of that? Well, again, I mean, you don't have to go, well, maybe you go back to 1994, you look at a, a, a budget crisis in, in Sweden, it, it pressures the currency. If you look at Canada during the 1990s, concerns about the fiscal discipline there, it pressures the currency. When you have a new finance minister, when you get the, the market very confident that this can be turned around, that there is fiscal discipline, the 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 currency goes up. It's a very simple dynamic. Yeah. Remember, at the Eurozone debt crisis, it pressures the euro. Now, I'm not saying that what we've seen in the U.S. is anything like uh, any <clears> of <throat> the problems that we had in those three re- regions that I've just mentioned, but that's a good example. Uh, a budget or lack of budget discipline is considered to be uh, a negative for a currency, and this is yeah. what the market's working through now. Speaking of pressure, Tom Keane, former presidential candidate Mitt Romney, says he's running for the U.S. Senate seat in Utah. Um, I imagine if he gets that seat, that means a little bit more pressure for the president of the United States to get anything done. Well, there's no question. And that shows the subtleties of the GOP response here and that we always look at the adversarial Democrat versus Trump, Democrat versus Republican. Yeah. But so many of the nuances moving to 2018 and particularly on to 2020 uh, has to be uh, the idea of, of, of within the Republican uh, Party. He has a number of titles, Governor Romney of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, 70 years old. And I, I, that, that catches me by surprise. Uh, John, of course, he's always been buoyant and had a real uh, uh, gait, uh, whether he was doing the Olympics in Utah. That's one of the reasons he can go back to Utah so well, Yeah, was he was considered the hero of the Utah Olympics. I don't think that's editorializing. But it goes back uh, again, John Farrow, and in, in for our global audience, to my Ute of Michigan politics and his father, who was George Romney long before Mitt Romney. So it's a Republican family, and as you uh, nicely put, perhaps removed from uh, the politics of the President of the United States. We thank Jane Foley for her uh, perspective today with Robble Bank, and that's a headline again, Mitt Romney saying you will run again for this, run rather, for U.S. Senate seat uh, in Utah. 
we're trying to do today, folks, after all the market hysteria, and to be clear, there's less hysteria, and a major surveillance shout out to Karen Moscow, who really kept us together uh, with sophisticated data checks through all of this volatility. But within that is to take a broader look. Let's do that with inflation right now. Amir Sharif is a society general, and he is known to write detailed essays with far too many charts. And one of them, Omer, <laughs> is Janet Yellen, sometimes once, twice, three times in a press conference, talking about wireless phone deflation, is you pull out a chart of hospital services inflation. In one of the great fictions of the media, there's one or two or three inflation statistics. There's like 40, 50 things underlying it, isn't there? Yeah, it's uh, if, you, if you look at inflation data, it, there's a lot happening each and every month. You mentioned wireless, there's hospitals, what's happening to car prices. There's a lot of uh, sort of underlying volatility in the numbers. You know, what I try to do is kind of dig into the details of some of this to, to you know, get a sense of, yes, the broader picture is here, but perhaps the narrative is wrong if we look at some of these details. So, we, you know, we, we think that's a good way to look at it, this bottom-up approach to inflation. Um, and there's a lot coming in the next few months. You mentioned wireless, for example. That's going to help lift the inflation rate in, as soon as we get to the March data, uh, which will come out in mid-April. That's going to get us probably about 20 basis points why? on the inflation why will, rate. Why will cell phone inflation go up? Well, cell phone inflation went down dramatically last March. 10% is the statistic this month. It it was down very, very sharply in March of 2017. The way the pace that we're running at right now each month, it's, you know, roughly flattish. So when you compare that sort of 0% change that we expect in March to a minus 10, you're going to get a huge lift on that year-over-year rate. So the Fed knew this was going to happen all along. This is why Janet Yellen last summer in a June press conference, had this right. you know, simple, <clears throat> simple line saying, we know this is transitory and idiosyncratic. So we know this is going to change come the spring. And that's why we expect inflation to move higher, the core probably to around 2% by mid-year. And then we think it'll cool off in the second half of the year. I, I, I mean, look at this. You know, cell phones, obviously, we all got them. Good morning. Outside of Toledo, De Fratelli tomatoes, tomatoes moonshot. They go the other way. Now, granted, tomatoes are not wireless cell phone, but how does a company, how does a guy like you and a bank like Sockgen, how do you fold in the deflation on the one side and the inflation in tomatoes on the other side? Do you just sum it up or do you do some other uh, calculus with incense? Yeah, no, we, you know, the, the BLS tells us exactly what the weight of all of these components is. So how much is, you know, how much do you spend out of all of your, your spending on cell phones or, or on tomatoes or on cars, things of that nature? Yeah. So if you get a sense of what the price change might be every month and you know what the weight is, you can sort of <clears throat> aggregate right. it from there and, and get a sense <clears throat> of inflation. Okay, so there's the math. But here's the reality, folks, and I get, I get, I, I, I can honestly say it's not the most mail, but it's right up there. Tom, the inflation in my mailbox is a lot worse than what Omer Sharif is saying on Bloomberg surveillance. Service sector inflation is tangible. Cleveland CPI adjusted core is tangible. And yet you're telling me goods inflation is not so. What do you say to our listeners who say they've got service sector inflation killing them in their mailbox? Yeah, I think, well, to be fair, service sector inflation, even in the official data, is you know, around uh, two and a half, three percent per year. Um, I, you know, it's tough to talk to individuals about this because we talk about the average consumer across the United States. 
everyone is going to have their own experience, and that's especially true if you live, you know, in Toledo versus Philadelphia or, or Boston. Um, it's it's different all over the place, and we we try to focus on the average, the you know, the consumer as a whole. Um, and look, I, the other thing I would say is oftentimes when you're paying for stuff out of pocket, mm-hmm. it's you know directly coming out of your wallet. You're not worried about quality adjustment or hedonics or any of these things that the BLS does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is sometimes very difficult to explain yeah. exactly what the inflation data are doing to, okay. pe- to people. And we're hedonic-free on uh, Fridays here at Bloomberg Surveillance. <laughs> Omar Sharif, if that's the case, then, are we undershooting inflation? Is our audience right? It's higher uh, than we actually measure? Look, I, you know, I think you take the broadest indicator we've got of inflation, which is the PC deflator. And right now, it's still running. The core is still running around 1.5. Um I think, you know, overall, we are probably doing a decent job, you know, uh, given the limitations of of capturing sort of these price changes. And uh, as far as the Fed's concerned, we're still undershooting on on core inflation. And we'll we'll see if we can manage to get there uh, by the end of this year. Within the mix that we're talking about this morning across economics, across markets, and, of course, some of these subtle academics, again, thank to Adam Posen for his attendance. Uh, today, Omar Sharif, it just comes down to, as I've mentioned earlier today, folks, the real financial repression that's out there, low rates and then low inflation adjusted rates. In the mix that you see, Omar Sharif, do you see rising inflation adjusted interest rates so retirees can get less repressed over the next 24 months? Yeah, look, I actually think inflation um, itself is probably going to stay pretty stable. Um, so, you know, if there's any kind of a move in real rates, it's, it's going to come from, you know, especially higher, it's going to come from those nominal screaming. But I think that part of, you know, part of what we're looking for is, is for rates to come back down later on this year, um, partly because, in our view, the inflation story is still very contained, despite all of the sort of panic and, and fear about runaway inflation in the last couple of weeks. You know, we think that's a first-half story, and in the second half, it should quiet down, which should help those nominal rates yeah. move a little bit lower. Omar, thank you so much. Omar Sharif is a SOC Gen, a terrific briefing. That was phenomenal there, the briefing on some of the dynamics of uh, inflation. You know who also is a miracle to be here in the studio with us? Right. Go ahead. Michael Holland. Michael Holland with us. Yes. yes. He's The only reason you're here, are you interviewing the Rangers to, to run the team when they clean house? They call me a miracle on ice. <laughs> they do. And they're going to need one <laughs> as well. Michael Holland with us. And it is a wonderful uh, way to gain perspective, as we did with Howard Ward of Gabelli a few days ago. Michael, what did you do on Monday and Tuesday? Like, did you just go ice skate somewhere? Or or, or what, what do you do when it's that frenzy? Um don't just do something, stand there, was something I learned in one of the previous frenzied periods, and it's stood me to good stead forever. And when things are crazy, if you liked what you had going in, you may like it even a little bit more after the frenzy is over, and if you have some reserves, you probably Did you more. acquire shares on Monday and Tuesday? No, I don't know, because I was there. I, I have the, no, I, I was thinking, Tom, um, the crash of 87, um, that would have been six to 7,000 Dow points. 
And the 67,000 Dow points as opposed to the 1,000, which was the, the big couple of days we had uh, several days ago, those, you know, these, these things are bumps as you look back years later. So if you like your Walmart or your J&J or your 3M um, going into it, it's, 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 you don't have to do anything. Michael, in that context, though, uh, I understand that the conversation turns to what do I sell when markets fall? That can yeah. be a common conversation, correct? Yes. And an expert will say, don't do that, right? That is yes. the worst time to do that. Yes. So what is the best time to sell? When, as Warren Buffett said, when everyone is enthusiastic and loving everything that's going on. So is, now the, Goldilocks the, time to, world. So is now the time to oh, sell a little bit? Oh, I think there are lots of scared people out there, Pim. I listened to you a couple of days ago asking some questions that re related to this exact subject, which was um, when you... Um, have a situation where you sell some and it keeps going up, haven't you made some money? And what the question you'd ask then and the one you're kind of asking now is one, it's an investor like us as an individual investor or institutions, the person you were interviewing was an institutional investor. And unfortunately, that kind of pressure, the moment-to-moment, -moment, quarter to quarter pressure that these people have forces them to do things that are dumb. By the way, I've been in that business, so I've done dumb well, things. They, well, okay, so okay? that leads me to, my, to another question, which is when you have that debate inside of an institution, mm -hmm. who, first of all, who are you having the debate <clears throat> with, and how does that ultimately get resolved? Because there are a couple of different competing interests, right? I mean, there's job preservation, oh, there's yeah. the standing of the firm, but that ultimately it's about the client, or is that not necessarily always I think the you got the order just right. Okay. That was number three. Yeah. That was number three. I, I have to tell you, there was a, a, a wonderful uh, uh, market uh, uh, a scribe named Barton Biggs who, who wrote something once that said, when you um, are uh, fully invested in a, a bull market that turns into a bear market and your, stocks go, and your client stocks go down, your client complains. When the market goes up and you have a lot of cash, your client fires you. So that's what uh, the people who run these businesses are aware of when the market is doing the fluctuations. Well, then what do you see in terms of effervescence? Anthony emails in here from a zip code in Connecticut I can't afford. And Anthony has a really Michael Holland type question about fund flows, which is, okay, great, media, blah, 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 blah. What are people actually doing with their money? What are they doing right now, Michael? What well, do you see? Short, well, right now, the, the biggest number that's, that's happened uh, in report on Bloomberg this morning is uh, a huge outflow from the junk bond funds. Um, there were, uh, uh, there were uh, flows out of the equity funds last week. Uh, the the short-term flows are really, a, at best, a contraindicator, but actually they're very confusing. Six billion, that's the number, right? Yeah. The investors pulling six billion Thank from you, junk bond funds. So, yeah, so I was telling goes, the truth. But you this, were, goes back to the, oh, look, this goes back to the arch issue of cash. And somebody in the heat of Monday or Tuesday, Michael Holland, brought up that great moment you and I lived with Mr. Rukeyser, where he calmed, literally calmed a nation on that Friday evening after yeah. the crash. Yeah. A lot of people in 87 went to cash right. and didn't enjoy the December into January 1988 <laughs> recovery. 
about 2000, we, 2007, 2008, 2009. We are we thing. repeating that again? And my answer is there's a real possibility we could be. Oh, yeah. And I think um, there, there have been a number of articles in the past several days, Tom, talking about how little the uh, stock market gyrations have on the, the American public because so few people identify their wealth has have, or their, their, uh, their fortunes having anything to do with the stock market. Which is So when we get the consumer sentiment surveys from Michigan and other places, as we do today, we end up with the situation where the market goes down. The market, uh, with, with all due respect to President Trump, who's been trumpeting, uh, oh, good pun, uh, the, the market uh, doing well as part of uh, uh, his report card, I think at the end of the day, um, you, you simply end up with, with people kind of selling high and buying low. Not really. No, they do the opposite. They Michael do the Holland, opposite. thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. We don't, we don't see enough of him, Pim. We have to <laughs> adjust this with our team. We can have his badge validated. Yes, we should. Maybe even take care of his parking. <clears throat> but, well, he's going to be at, you know, training for the Rangers here in August with a <laughs> rebuild. Michael Holland of Holland Management. This is really one of the high points of the year for Pim Fox and myself. Sort of wrapped around New York Fashion Week, and she will migrate to Milan here in a bit to continue the fashion storm is Vanessa Friedman of the New York Times, whose articles are definitive uh, worldwide on the pulse of fashion and luxury. And we are honored that joining uh, Ms. Friedman this morning is Robert Burke uh, of Robert Burke Associates. Uh, he is a force to contend with within luxury in the state of retail, of course. His stewardship of Bergdorf Goodman for years uh, is noted. Wonderful to have both of you with us as we celebrate fashion. Vanessa, is New York City the fashion capital of the world, or is it a different uh, geography? Well, I think Fashion Week in general is really Fashion Month, and it's composed of four different cities, New York, London, Milan, and Paris. New York kicks things off, but I would say the um, the buzz and the momentum is actually emigrating toward Paris. New York has lost four or five of its most um, famous names in recent uh, seasons, and it felt a little quiet this time. Robert Burke, do you agree that, that Madison Avenue in New York is a little quiet? And if so, what is a Robert Burke prescription? Well, I, I do agree, and we see um, a number of designers leaving the shows, and we see an emphasis on Paris, but I still think that from just a retail standpoint, people really do rely on, on Manhattan. While Madison Avenue may be a little slow in places, there's still great growth in, in, uh, in retail in Manhattan versus, say, uh, Paris, or mm. um, while Milan's great, but, but it is is still the the center that people look at now there's other competitive um, uh, cities um, like Dubai and, and London is certainly very very strong um, but New York's important from a retail perspective but it's been very slow on the on the fashion front um, with the shows and the designers well I put this question to both of you and maybe Vanessa you want to try it first but I mean is there really a mm -hmm. seasonality to fashion now when you can wear blue jeans t-shirts and hoodies just about anywhere any time of the year what is this whole idea about a particular season? Isn't that kind of old-fashioned? It's ridiculous, frankly. I mean, our language has simply not caught up with our reality. You know, we are still adhering to this idea of spring-summer and autumn-winter, and the truth is we wear the same clothes year-round because, as we all know, today in New York it is 55 degrees, and no one is wearing their fur. Robert, what do you think? I, I agree. I think that 
that the customer has evolved so quickly, and really the the department stores and the and the designers have not evolved as quickly as the customer has. And I think it's very passe to look at it in, in a, a seasonality a sort of uh, stance. Hey guys, I, I, you know, within we could go for hours here with uh, Vanessa Friedman and Robert Burke, but Vanessa Gucci gets all the buzz now and all that. Let's do the challenge up Madison Avenue to someone beloved in New York, and that would, of course, be the late Oscar de la Renta. What do Laura Kim and Fernando Garcia need to, need to do with that venerable brand in a time of Lululemon or Gucci doing athleisure, stretchy, squishy clothes? What do these two creative designers need to do? Well, Laura and Fernando are walking a very, very fine tightrope, yeah. and I would actually say they're doing a very good job because they are managing to satisfy the traditional Oscar customer, you know, who really wants a beautiful suit to wear to lunch, a beautiful party dress, and also to start to reach out to a new generation. And for me, the absolute encapsulation of that was something they put on the runway last week, which looked, if you if you look at the pictures, like sort of shirt tails coming out of a, a suit. It looked like someone was just yeah. had untucked their white shirt and they were walking down this, the runway. But in fact, it was a sort of removable, I don't even know what you call it, uh, shirt dicky, uh, like a, a waist dicky. So instead of a false front top, it was a false front bottom. You effectively put it on like apron. It stuck out from the bottom of your See, of your suit jacket, but it was not constricting. You didn't have to wear the whole thing. And that is the kind of high fashion nod to athleisure. See, Robert Burke, this is how Vanessa Friedman can bring an afternoon barbecue to a complete stop. She can she can <laughs> she can do that uh, with the discussions like this. Robert Burke, you don't know what, what to do with the waist? <laughs> I, I was lost. Pim and I, Pim and I are going. Wait, how do we wear that? Robert Burke, um, on a more on a, on a less enthusiastic or more interesting tack. What do the Nordstroms do? The Nordstroms are building a big store, I think, at the bottom of Central Park. They were featured this week with the challenges of that middle America feel. You are iconic at Bergdorf. You bring luxury worldwide. You consult to all the fancy people. Consult right now to Nordstrom's. Well, I think Nordstrom really appeals to the customer that's um, relying on their everyday. They still want fashion. They still want some brands. Nordstrom's footwear is fantastic. But what really stands out for Nordstrom is their customer service. So I think for that middle, I mean, Bergdorf's is Bergdorf's. I think for that middle, um, that, that customer that has a family that knows about fashion, men or women, um, and, and they want something, Nordstrom knows how to fulfill that and be a non-intimidating, friendly environment. In Manhattan, um, that's needed right now. Vanessa, is a brand like Gypsy Sport really the future what? of fashion? Gypsy and what? Gypsy <laughs> Sport, and it's a 10-year-old YouTube viral fashion celebrity. You are so cutting edge. I'm trying to be. Explain to people about this 10-year-old model and about how this may be one of the directions that fashion is going. Well, you know, one of the things that that is really interesting that has happened on the runways that is absolutely notable and is a really positive development has been the expansion of the definition of what constitutes beauty and a runway model. You know, and increasingly these younger brands like Gypsy Sport, like the Cara, are casting friends people they admire, people they find on the street in their shows. You know, they're bringing personality and diversity and a broad range of physicality and physical types to the runway. And that Gypsy Sport just really went to the extreme, you know, both mm. because 
you got to see a lot of the bodies because there weren't a lot of clothes. And, um, oh, really? and because, you know, they even put a, a 10-year-old, you know, tra- transgender kid on the, uh, on the runway, you know, but they didn't, they didn't kind of caricature him up, which I think is important. You know, they really just let yeah. him be him and wear a nice suit. And, um, and it was a very human moment. To, to end our discussion in, in your generous time, Robert Burke, let me go to you. We had a wonderful conversation with the Keurig people, our Carolyn Conan in Paris, last week. And there was quietly one sentence in the discussion on Gucci where Mr. Pernod said, and we're selling it at full price. That's really the grail. Are we going to get back to buying full price? Are we forever going to be on sale? Well, what Gucci's done has been um, fantastic that they, and I applaud them, that they are a hot brand and they realize they don't have to chase after this markdown um, uh, game. And so they didn't put their, their handbags and their, sh- and their shoes and their clothes on sale. And, um, and, and, and I, I think if more brands that are in high demand start to do that, they'll realize that, uh, the customer will realize that they can't wait and that they need to buy it full. Price. So it's really all about training the customer again. To the two of you, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg Surveillance. Hugely valued for our worldwide audience. Ms. Friedman, of course, at the New York Times, and Mr. Burke with his own company, uh, advising retail and uh, PIMA luxury mindfulness. You are, you are cutting edge. I, I, I just was dazzled by that. You like that, huh? It's are you home I just watching read. YouTube? You know, you or? Just, no, well, I mean, if you have young children, you have young as children, you know, you're watching YouTube. You're watching YouTube because that's all they're watching. They're making everything from slime to their own handbags, and it is a do-it-yourself yeah. world. And it's probably like the most of, expensive lemonade stand in history. I love that. Well put. One of the uh, older offspring said the other day, you know what you need for Father's Day, Dad? You need a T-shirt that says, is that appropriate? <laughs> I thought they were going to say, how about a check? For is a, that appropriate? Yeah. You know, uh-huh. on YouTube, that's it. We love doing that, and, and we thank you for your feedback. We got a huge feedback from Ms. Conan's interview in Paris with Mr. Pernod of Keurig and Gucci. That was just stunning to see the feedback, and we'll do more of this because uh, either you own it or someone you know wants to buy luxury or maybe you aspire to it. We thank, again, Vanessa Friedman and Robert Burke. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.